Chapter Fourteen of A Bachelor Girl in Burma by Geraldine E. Mitten. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fourteen, on a cargo boat. When I left Mamio to return to Mandalay, I felt that I was setting my face homewards in good earnest. The trip down the Irrawaddy to Prome would take six days by the cargo boat, and from Prome to Rangoon would be one night by rail. Then I should have a few more days with friends before sailing in the Herefordshire for Ceylon, where I intended to stop only a fortnight between two of the Bibby boats. My glorious holiday was drawing near the end, but still one of the best parts was to come, the river trip, which is all that many people see of Burma. I am not naturally gregarious, and hearing that there were likely to be far more passengers on the mail boat, which only took three days in going to Prome, then on the cargo boat, which took double the time, I selected the latter. The agent of the Irrawaddy Flotilla Company told me that as the river was exceptionally low, the larger steamer could not get up to Mandalay, and I must board a ferry boat, which would take me down to it. The ferry boat did not start until the following morning, but it was necessary to sleep on board. As it went off so early, it would have been difficult to reach it in time otherwise. I arrived in Mandalay about 3.30 p.m., and it was very hot, but I knew my way about, and felt so much at home there, that it was very different from my first arrival when I had rushed about to find a decently clean spot in which to make my camp. From the station I sent Chenaswamy on, with all the luggage, in a gharry to the shore, and myself went and had tea at the Dak bungalow where the courteous Derwan greeted me like an old friend. Coming out, I found in the compound the weirdest little figure of a tiny native girl, a girl, I imagine, who gazed at me with the grown-up dignity inherent from birth in the smallest Oriental, mingled with the furtive alertness of the wild creature. It was one of the most fascinating little objects I ever saw. After tea, as I had nowhere to go, I took a tram and went down to the shore. But, oh, that shore! Luckily, I had arrived in daylight, or I do not know how I should ever have reached safety. As it was, I stumbled about ankle-deep in hopeless reaches of soft sand, amid groups of natives with mule and bullock carts, which kicked up the dust in clouds. The sun was very powerful, and my sunshade had taken this opportunity to refuse to go up. I fell over ropes and scrambled out of dry ditches. I worked my way through tubs and bales of merchandise, and there was no one, no one to ask. I could not speak a word of the language, even the name of the steamer was unknown to me, and when I made a desperate attempt to explain by saying I was seeking the steamer for Rangoon, the natives only stared at me. They were not rude, but evidently were unaccustomed to seeing a white woman down on the shore amid all the tangle of ropes and the dirt and dust made by straining, tugging animals. Yet, in a way, I was fortunate, for two friends who went through the same experience some weeks later, arrived in the dark and wandered about, hand in hand in distress and perplexity, having, as they phrased it, the most despairing times of their lives. The difficulty was that there were several great flats or barges for cargo, alongside attached to the steamers, and to get on board at all, one had to elbow aside the coolies, cross the plank gangway, and pass through the flat, 
and I hardly felt inclined to do this without knowing whether the steamer were the right one or not. At length, however, after walking on what seemed like miles, but in reality was, I suppose, some hundred yards or so, I ventured to board a flat, and found on one of the adjoining steamers a semi-white man who spoke English. He pointed out the right boat to me, much farther downstream, and I returned to the sandy waste and climbed over great pipes and balks of timber and slippery inclines until I reached it. The natives, who were loading the accompanying flat, spoke a few words of English, and seeing me, informed me, Memsab boy, here, which gladdened my heart, as I knew my luggage was safe, and I could change shoes and stockings, and empty out the piles of accumulated sand they contained. I went up to the small forward deck, where I was to spend the next few hours, feeling rather dismal. It was stuffy and uninteresting, but I was in a haven, at all events. That night at dinner I had my first sight of white ants with wings. There are several varieties, and this particular sort are like flat-winged flies, not so large or solid as bluebottles, more of the type of river gnats. Because of them it was impossible to have a lamp on the table. We put it as far from us as we could. The beasts kept up a buzz, like a hailstorm, and actually crawled inside the globe of the lamp, gradually filling it up. The captain, a Scot, who had been years in the country, laughed at my disgust and assured me I should see more before I had done. However, he added, I should probably get off easily, for the winged insects were only to be appreciated to the full after the rainy season. Next morning we were off very early, and soon came in view of the big steamer, the China. After circling around her like a pigeon round its mate, we came up alongside and were transferred. The Irrawaddy Flotilla Company's steamers are extremely comfortable and pleasant. There is a large saloon deck forward, roofed in, but open for the greater part along the sides. A table and deck chairs and bright-colored rugs make it look homely and comfortable. The cabins are of large size, and that which I had was furnished with real bedsteads, not bunks, and had a bathroom attached. For food, the arrangement is to pay four rupees a day, a reasonable amount considering the obvious difficulties of procuring supplies. I cannot imagine a more restful and pleasant holiday than to come downstream thus, through this fascinating country. The chief delight is the abounding leisure in a hurrying age. You stop everywhere and never know for how long. It is just a matter of cargo. Your conscience has no excuse for bothering you, for you must give yourself up to pure laziness and simply drift. Even the most fussy of globe-trotters would be unable to make any plans, and would be forced into an outer semblance of calmness. When I first came on board, I found a party of high-class Brahmins traveling about in charge of a young Englishman, but they soon got off, and I was the only passenger for the rest of the way a boon for which I blessed my luck, as I heard that on the mail steamer which had left the day before there were fourteen people to fill the fourteen berths. The Brahmins wore European clothes with soft shoes and collars, and looked as slovenly as only natives can in these circumstances. They had their food, of course, apart from us, and kept to their own side of the saloon. They all talked English, and it was somewhat amusing to hear them discussing English books. One of them said to another, I am reading Pendennis. I do not find it exciting. 
and the other answered, I am reading Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. It has not plot. I like plot. Neither is it a detective story. It is only history. To this critical estimate the other rejoined, Read Lady Adelaide by Mrs. Henry Wood. That book is interesting from the beginning till the end. It is lovely. We had on each side of us a great flat, with the boughs a little way behind ours, and whenever one looked over the side, one saw these flats following with a dreadful monotony. I can well imagine their use. They enable a great deal more cargo to be carried. The labor of packing it on their capacious decks is much less than that of conveying it down into the steamer's hold. Also, if the steamer were loaded too heavily, she would draw too much water for the shallow, sand-barred river, whereas the flats enable the weight to be distributed. Yet, from the point of view of a passenger, the flats are a nuisance. To begin with, when we stopped, I had to cross a gangway often encumbered by a rush of natives, push through an unsavory flat laden with cattle, and go over another gangway before I could reach a shore. And as we stopped only a short time at some places, I did not care to face all this. Then, too, when we were drawn up, I could see from the saloon deck delightful groups of people washing or squatting on the shore, just too far off to get with my camera. If no flat had intervened, I could have taken many a picture from the deck in comfort. Thirdly, at these same landing-places the flat blocked my view of all the most interesting part of the shore, the part where the full tide of life flowed. I could not see over its corrugated iron roof, and I could not see round its wide-spreading sides. Yet, as flats were the one drawback incidental to the cargo-boat, and the advantages were many, I cannot grumble. The company has had a very happy idea in placing on the saloon deck two huge mirrors at right angles to the line of progress, so that if you are leaning back in a deck-chair, you see a series of colored living pictures of low-lying sandy shores and green banks and blue water forever passing before you. To sit and look at those pictures all day is occupation enough as occupation goes in this lotus land, and I fear my system will never be quite free from the germs of laziness then imbibed unto my life's end. The pictures were varied occasionally by a line of thatch and mat huts along the high ground, or by the huge rafts floating downstream or the quaint native boats. There is no lack of detail. The first day slipped by very fast. We pulled up two or three times at small places, and, when we finally anchored for the night about five o'clock, the captain came to ask me if I would care to go for a walk with the first officer, who was detailed for the duty. I was glad enough, for I always felt in Burma it was a little difficult to walk alone. We wandered through a dusty and very typical Burman village, a jungle of compounds and bamboo fences and tumble-down huts all standing on legs for when the wet weather comes the whole place is under flood. The village is completely surrounded by a high and impenetrable palisade of thorn, which had only certain entrances. Here and there were trellises with large green vegetables, rather like our vegetable marrows, hanging from them, and there was an occasional tree bearing green limes, but the predominating impression is that of thick gray dust in which rolled innumerable periodogs, who simply yelled at us, and when one began the whole assemblage took it up, and the rest was pandemonium. We came out at the other side of the village, 
on the wide mud flats of the paddy fields intersected by raised ridges it was very dull and utterly uninspiring in fact i am bound to say that except for the coloring the scenery down the river is the very reverse of beautiful and i describe it as i saw it wherein then lies the fascination why do i look back on that river trip as one of my most cherished memories why does it gleam out as one of the most interesting things i have ever done ceylon was ten times more beautiful but ceylon has not a tithe of the fascination of burma oh those peaceful days so monotonous in their even flow but never never dull the prevailing leisureliness lay around me like an atmosphere i used to have chota Hausri in bed and get up about nine during the morning i read or wrote or watched the ever-changing pictures in mirror or reality the mirror of the lady of shalott was not to be compared with mine for she saw only familiar objects belonging to her own country and age and mine were all revelations a little flag fluttering on the shore summoned the steamer where there was cargo to pick up and we dawdled across from one bank to another stopping at all the little places on the sandy shores sometimes i went for a stroll but it was generally too hot and then i never knew how long we should remain at any particular place it might be an hour but it might be only half and in the delicious state of my indolence to do anything up to time was positive torture so more often i sat under the shade of my awning and watched the people from that sweet shelter at eleven o'clock came breakfast and by one it was time for a siesta afternoon tea was over by four by which hour we were generally anchored for the night so it was quite safe to go and potter on the beach and take photos yet even at four it was amazing to feel the power of the sun which seemed to strike down with the force of physical blows after the first evening i suggested to the captain i should join him in a walk instead of bestowing my company on his junior officer and he acquiesced this was serious business we put on our strongest boots and i my shortest skirts because of the unutterable dust and the prickly thorns and we strode off inland it might be three miles or more round about the villages over the waste ground and back as the sun fell ready for a comfortable bath before dinner this was not the last time we went and during these walks i learned much that interested me and never failed to get all sorts of odds and ends of information out of my companion who like most captains had a watchful eye at dinner he and the officer joined me and stayed on talking while we enjoyed our cigarettes and coffee and i learned the intricacies of shoals and cargo this could not last long because after a certain hour we had a visitation of the winged white ants i had been promised and they were much more terrible than those i had seen already we did not meet them at once but some way down the stream and the first i knew of them was when the captain called out to me to come and see a sight on the lower deck a sight indeed it was the whole place was like a snowstorm a stage snowstorm for the flakes flew in a thick white whirl it would have been quite impossible to stand in it the insects were not only round the lamps but in every cubic yard of space large whitey drab creatures like big moths i exclaimed and wondered why they did not come up on to my deck as well but i spoke too soon a few of the most enterprising discovered the lamps there and five minutes after the place was a whirl with them 
I could not even have dashed in among them to get a book or paper. They filled me with a peculiar loathing. And then the vanguard appeared, as they did thereafter about ten minutes past nine every night. I fled to my bed in the protection of my mosquito curtains. In the morning they lay like wisps of cotton all over the place, and had to be swept up. They then seemed to be of the same texture as the skeleton leaves children pull out of the moist earth. All substance was gone, and the boughs of the flats were covered with them, as it were with grains of rice. The captain told me that at certain times of the year they came out of holes where the ordinary white ants live, and the crows seemed to know beforehand when they are coming. Once he saw two old crows standing guarding a hole, and presently there emerged first a few winged ants, and then more and more in clouds, and the crows snapped them up till they nearly burst, but could of course only dispose of about one per cent. Though the Burmese villages were not attractive at close quarters, they looked very pretty from the river, and especially in the evening light. There might be one or two high-stern boats, with the most wonderful and elaborate wood-carving, black with age, forming a panel. The steersman sat in a little lookout station raised even higher than the stern, and had a roof-mat to protect him from the sun. Occasionally, for instance, to get past us as we lay in shore, four fine bronzed figures would pull at the oars in graceful athletic poses, and perhaps so many as five or six of these fascinating boats would come slowly past us in a line but the method of progression is generally by polling, and the difficulty is to hit the happy medium to keep it sufficiently in the shallow parts for the poles to be used effectively, and yet not to run aground. The boats are being gradually given up, because their build and shape is not the most convenient for carrying cargo, as I can well believe. Once I crawled into one which was tethered by the shore, having sent the boy previously to ask permission and I found the owner, a rather grumpy old Burman, squatted under his very low roof, smoking. The hold was much deeper and more capacious than I had imagined, but the work of getting stuff in and out must be very laborious. One small oft-repeated detail on board the China, which never failed to interest me, was the carrying of the line ashore when we tied up. Eight of the Lascars had this job under their peculiar care, and they used to swim often a fair distance, carrying the line with them to make the head of the steamer fast to a tree or post. Again and again I tried to get a snapshot at them as they jumped into the water, but always failed. They frequently leaped into the sun, which made it impossible. At other times it was too late in the evening, or the shadow of the boat was over them, so that though I was ever on the lookout I never got a good photo and the only one I managed to take at all was a fraction of a second too slow, and the movement resulted in a blur. These men wore blue linen trousers fastened round the waist, and though they were in and out of the water all day, I do not suppose they ever changed, as the hot sun soon dried up the moisture. They always sprang feet first, which gave them a bad send-off, and they swam hand over hand, more in the fashion of a dog than a man. The course of the river were navigable, is buoyed by long bamboo poles painted red and white and black and white these are attached to boys beneath the water and they rise and dip and turn with the current so as to look exactly like the necks of swan i was at first often deceived by them imagining some graceful bird was paddling ahead at most of the villages where we stopped in the evening 
There were whole families bathing together, father and mother and children. The parents washed themselves assiduously, shaking out their long black hair, and then the mothers scrubbed the babies all over while the older children sported like young sea-lions. Both sexes were always most scrupulous in their manners, and never appeared out of the water unclad. The women would discard their small linen jackets, and draw the lungis up to their armpits, fastening them with a subtle twist. Then, when the washing was completed, and real washing it was, though they never used soap, they would step out on shore and slip a clean dry lungi over their heads, letting the wet one drop off beneath the same time. There was no drying necessary. Subsequently they washed the discarded lungi, beating it out upon the stones. Then men and women alike, stooping down, just brushed the surface of the water aside and drank from their hands. Last of all, chatties were filled and carried away for household consumption. So far as I could see, the invariable routine was never departed from. First they washed themselves, then their clothes, then they drank, and finally they carried up water for their use. I suppose long custom has made them immune from typhoid. The water was, of course, running, but it was slow and muddy flood, and it always appeared a matter of perfect indifference to the people if the whole of their neighbors were bathing above them. The children enjoyed the performance with a zest that was infectious. I used to see small girls dancing into the water, with babies almost as big as themselves, and going nearly out of their depth. The wee things, which had cried as the cold water first struck them, becoming infected by the sister's merriment, soon shouted aloud in glee. Most industrious, too, were the small girls, carrying the red chatties full of water up the steep sand or mud cliffs. I saw one little mite going backwards and forwards with her chatty many times, though to lift it when full always proved a staggering job. The river was low, as it was the dry season, and we were not able to come right up to some of the large places, as I would have liked, but generally stopped at a recognized landing or steamer gat some miles off, where there was a small village or settlement only. It was a pretty sight to watch the villages in the evening with the rich yellow westering sun flooding all over them. Generally there were the picturesque roofs of the chungs appearing above a grove of palms, a few little thatched huts turned end on, or at any angle along the higher ground, people gay and their red lungis dotted up and down the sandy shore, bringing droves of bullocks the color of Jersey cows down to water. It was odd, too, to see the difference in habits between the bullocks and the great buffaloes. The former only drank and never went more than knee-deep in the flood. The buffaloes went in right up to their necks in droves, with their huge branching horns making a tangle on the surface of the water. Yet interesting as they were, all these Burmese riverside places were utterly different from my anticipatory picture. I had imagined a firm yellow smooth beach like those of some English seaside places. Dainty little maidens in pink silk, with shining heads and gaily colored paper parasols, tripping down all spotless and entrancing. The reality was baked mud, dust, good-tempered, rough, coolie girls, wearing old weather-stained cotton lungis, and in the daytime, all the glare, bustle, and heat of heavy work done under a baking sky and a general litter of untidiness on the beach. Everything looked much the best in the evenings, 
and then at a distance. To investigate the picture closely was to lose the chief effect. Often and often I regretted not being able to speak to the people in their own language, for, as everyone knows who has tried it, to talk through an interpreter himself not very fluent to people who are shy to begin with produces but small result. Not only on shore, but on the steamer itself, when I walked through the long covered after-deck and saw the passengers squatting about among all their household goods, I would have given anything to chat with them. But all that I could do was nod and smile, and nodding and smiling very soon became insipid. End of chapter 14